This, mo- su- uh, this morning for the Sunday School Hour, we're going to be in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Again, we're going to be finishing chapter 1 of the Scriptures. We're going to be looking at paragraphs 4 through 10. And before we get started, let us um, go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, uh, we are gathered together again on the Lord's Day, Lord, uh, to rejoice Lord, in Christ, to worship you, uh, Lord, to edify one another and build one another up, to bear one another's burdens, Lord, to pray together, to hear the reading of your word, hear the proclamation of your word, Lord, to uh, enjoy the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we, as we've gathered together today, Father, we pray that you would bless our time. Lord, we pray that you would transform our minds, Lord, that you would increase our faith, Lord, that you would give us a greater assurance of Christ today. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not a believer, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the majesty and glory of Christ and to marvel at the the beauty and the perfection of your word. Lord, bless us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at the 1689, uh, just as a reminder, the 1689, uh, it's called the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, because the first one was begun in 1644, and this one was actually done in 1677, and because of the Act of Toleration from William and Mary in 1689, uh, many of the churches in London actually officially uh, signed uh, this confession of faith. And it begins with the scriptures. And so last week we looked at um, the, one of these first principles. We looked at of the scriptures in chapter one on the third, first three paragraphs. And uh, just to kind of give you an overview of where we are headed over this year, we're going to be looking at chapters one through six, which covers all the, the first principles, all the, um, the some of the, the greatest doctrinal teachings, whether it's the scriptures uh, or the Trinity or God's decree or creation and providence, all these things, are these first principles, chapters one through six. And then we're going to get into God's covenant, uh, the ordo salutis and, and all these facets of Christ is our mediator in the covenant uh, of God and the covenant of redemption through chapter 7 and 20. And then we're going to look at Christian liberty, and then finally we will get to the last things in the last two chapters. Um, so looking forward to that. This last week we looked at, uh, just by way of review, uh, chapters 1, paragraphs uh, 1 through 3. So we only made it through three paragraphs last week, and Lord willing, uh, I will make it through the other seven uh, ver- uh, paragraphs 4 through 10 today. So it's, it's going to be kind of rapid. Uh, I will try to get through it as quickly as I can. I want you to know the information. I want you to have time to digest the information and understand it even over this uh, next few weeks. And I want you to understand um, their importance of the Holy Scriptures. And so last week we looked at the necessity of the Scriptures in that if we didn't have the Scriptures, this special revelation, we wouldn't know of redemption. We wouldn't know of God Uh, in his redeeming works in Christ, in his covenantal uh, nature. Uh, We would only know enough of general revelation to condemn us. And so uh, we looked at chapters, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 2, where it highlights the identity of the scriptures, listing the 66 uh, books of the Bible, talking about how those 66 books have been 
breathed out by God. That was the position of these framers of the confession. And then they spoke briefly on the exclusion of the Apocrypha in light of that. Today we're going to see three uh, big points. Uh, there, there are many other facets uh, that we're going to see through paragraphs 4 through 10. But from the biggest vantage point, we're going to see the framers highlighting the authority of the Scriptures. And where does the authority of the Scriptures come from? We're going to look at the perfection of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of them. And how they are perfect for everything that God would want us to know. The whole counsel of God. And then lastly, we're going to look at the clarity of the Scriptures. And the... The things that the scripture talks about uh, in, in the clarity of them. And, the, and we're going to end with the finality of the scriptures. And the scriptures are uh, the last place that we go. There's the ultimate authority to settle all disputes of um, religion. And so I printed it out there for you on paragraph four. Thinking of the authority of the scriptures and how the framers of the 1689 understood it. They say this, the authority of the Holy Scripture... For which it ought to be believed depends or dependeth not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. And so when the framers were to talk about this, the notice that they say the authority of the holy scriptures uh, last week we looked at, when they, when they talk about the Holy Scriptures, they're talking about the written Word of God, that which has been uh, inscripturated by God. And they say it does not depend on the testimony of any man. It doesn't depend on my testimony. Uh, but they also highlight the fact that it does not depend upon the church. That is, it is not dependent upon the institution of the church. And what they're trying to talk about there is uh, to guard against the Roman view or the, the, the view of the Pope and the church being uh, the ultimate authority of the one who um, holds the final authority. And they say, no, the authority belongs to the Holy Scriptures and the authority belongs to God's Holy Word. And one of the things that's interesting to notice here, they talk about Holy Scriptures in the beginning of this paragraph, and then they end the paragraph with Word of God. And so when the framers were considering writing this confession, one of the things that they understood and they, they knew, especially on the Westminster Confession in the Savoy, is when we talk about the Word of God in Scripture, the written Word of God, um, this is God's Word. It is God speaking to us as we're going to look up some verses uh, in uh, just a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Second Peter Chapter 1, this has been a, a passage that was not only highlighted uh, when we had our uh, October 31st Reformation Day celebration, uh, but I think it will bear witness again today on uh, the topic at hand. Look at me, if you would, at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Peter says this, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, so Apostle Peter's talking about eyewitness testimony, the fact that they were there, they saw the Lord. But then look, look what he says in verse 17. He says, for when 
he, talking about Christ Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born to him by the, mad, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Since we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So the Apostle Peter is drawing reference to the transfiguration of Christ. When they saw the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured, talking with Moses and Elijah, he says, we were there, we were eyewitnesses of that. And you would think that he would say, therefore... Look for some kind of great, wonderful experience like that. Uh, and maybe God will bless you too in that way. But as one who is uh, an apostle who has authority, he doesn't say that. But look what he says in verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more carefully or more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. It says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the Apostle Peter does here is he points us Instead of to experience, he points us to the scriptures. He calls it the more sure word. He points us to the scriptures. He says, you will do well to pay attention to this word, right? As a lamp shining in a dark place. And the idea is, uh, even as the Apostle Paul says, like the Bereans, we are to be um, searching and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. Whether you hear preaching up here or teaching up here, the Apostle Paul, the one who has authority, he came preaching and teaching, and the Bereans, he said, were more noble than those in, in Thessalonica because what did they do? They, they took the scriptures and they're hearing Paul teach and preach, and they're saying, Are these things lining up with what he is teaching, with what he is saying? And so they were using the scriptures as their final authority. Um, also listed there is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3.16. A very, very familiar passage uh, to many of us. Some of you may have already memorized it. I want to back up a few verses. I want us to note um, the sufficiency of the scriptures of what Paul says to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we'll just begin in verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, uh, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings." Now, as we remember, uh, Timothy had been brought up by his mom and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he says, from childhood, you were acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so, Scripture is profitable, it is sufficient, even for children. Isn't that interesting? Never thought of that. Saying, thinking as, the, as we teach our children, as we talk to our children about the Scriptures, that he says here, that from childhood, you've been acquainted with the Scriptures. And so, obviously, this is a call not only for us to acquaint our own children, grandchildren with the Scriptures, but they are sufficient to make you wise in the salvation, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so the authority comes from the Scriptures, not from any man, not from any man's teaching, as it's going to say and reiterate uh, later in other paragraphs, nor from the church, but what? From the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Paragraph 5 kind of continues with the authority aspect. And one of the things that he talks about in, uh, or the the confession talks about in paragraph 5, is a lot of externals. A lot of externals that highlight the authority of Scripture. But as we're going to see in the rest of paragraph 5, we're not going to say that these externals are where the authority comes from. But let's note what it says about the authority from paragraph 5, from an external way. He says, or I keep saying he, uh, the confession says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God, so it's not bad, the testimony of the church of God, uh, to an high and reverent esteem of holy scriptures, and the heavenliness of the matter, that is... uh, the projection of, of the holiness and the truth that the, uh, that the scriptures testify to. Uh, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, and the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give God glory, the full discovery that it makes of the only way of man's salvation. He says, and they, and they say here, and many other incomparable excellencies. And the entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. What could we add externally to this? What could we flesh out when you think of the consents of all the parts, the majesty of the style, the incomparableness of the excellencies? What are some things that you think of when you think of the beauty, the majesty of God's holy word? What are some of those facets for you that stand out? Truth. Truth. Jesus says, I am the truth, right? What if it wasn't true? If it wasn't true, it would be the greatest evil ever, ever, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised, right, we're most to be a pity of all men. Why? Because we're lying if Christ hasn't been raised, right? It's the biggest deal ever. Truth. It's important, right? It's of the high. It is of God. It is of God. What else? You think of the scriptures. What is something encouraging to you that stands out on the beauty and the perfection and the majesty of the scriptures, of the Holy Scriptures? Yes, so 
he said that uh, of all the authors, right, over 40 authors wrote over how many uh, millennia, right? 1,400 years, three different continents, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they have one unifying voice, this redemptive thread of God and His glory to save sinners and to exalt His Son that He would be praised. That's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And they all agree. You get ten particular Baptists, or maybe just two particular Baptists, maybe one of you have this together in a room, and they don't agree. No, everything. The agreement of the Scripture is beautiful. What else? Sophie. The beauty of the narrative and the poetry. Okay. It's poetic. It's beautiful. Job. I mean, we went through Job, right? We go, wow, that whole book is poetry. Yeah, the Psalms. The praise and the adoration and the poetry given unto the Lord. Beautiful book. Beautiful. Maybe one more. Anyone else? I don't really think he uses scriptures to create the world, but uh, he used God the Son, maybe we would say, uh, to the agent of creation. Um, but yeah, maybe to think about it like this in, the, in God's spoken word, right? That God actually spoke the word and things came into being. And here we have the scriptures, and we're going to see later that when the scriptures speak, Jesus is going to hold our feet, if you will, to the fire and say, this is God speaking to you. So we should take it in. We should receive it, right? We should honor it. We should glory in God from it. So this part of paragraph five is really talking about externals. And he's going to say, let us not bank on the externals per se as glorious as they are. And they're not necessarily bad. But then the rest of chapter five, it says, kind of talks about the internal work of the word of God. He says, yet not with, they say, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That it is the Holy Spirit that bears witness by the word in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit doesn't work apart from His Word. And one of the things that they were combating uh, back then uh, was a lot of um, pietistic uh, Quaker movement where they thought, oh, I don't need this dull, dusty, written Word. Uh, we're just going to gather together and we're going to let the Spirit of God move in us. And whatever the God's Spirit lives in us tells us, that's what we're going to say or that's what we're going to believe or confirm or, or preach. And they, were, they looked at many of the Puritans as, um, as being those men of, of the dusty letter of the law. Well, one of the things that this speaks of is not only an inward illuminating work of the Holy Spirit of God, 
Um, and I had listed there 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which I'll read uh, verse uh, 10 through 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to those in Corinth and he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. As I keep reading through this passage, one of the things I want you to listen for is the work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart of man to understand even the Scriptures and the Revelation. It says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then here, listen to the contrast in verse 14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And the idea the Scripture is speaking of there is that uh, you must be born again to have understanding of the Scriptures, It is the inward work of the Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts that this is the Word of God. Holy Spirit confirms, the Holy Spirit bears witness to His Word that this is true, this is God's Word. Uh, It it should be a great encouragement for you if you're like, I'm not sure my faith is weak or I'm having doubts about different things. Go to the Word. Keep reading the Word of God. Examine what it says. Let it permeate your thoughts. Let it penetrate your hearts. May you bend your heart over it that you would confess your sin, that you would repent of your sin, and that you would seek to obey um, what God has spoken in His Holy Word. So we've seen the authority. Kind of printed out there for you. Next we get to the perfection of the Scriptures. Kind of highlighted in paragraph 6. Well, the confession, it says that the whole counsel of God concerning all things that are necessary for his own glory, for man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or it's necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or the traditions of men. And so again, trying to write against the Quakers who were talking about this uh, light they were receiving within themselves and not apart, or apart from the Scriptures. Uh, they're trying to guard against the aspect of new revelation or revelation that is outside of the Scriptures, saying that, again, what we have here is enough. It is sufficient. It is all we need for those things that are necessary for God's glory, for our salvation. Um, what is it in, uh, is it Second Peter? Where it says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory uh, and excellence. In 1 Peter um, chapter 1, he, he talks about um, the word of God. The word of God itself being um, the agent that causes us to be born again to a living hope. The word and all of its perfection. The rest of paragraph 6, it says, Nevertheless, it says, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God. Kind of piggybacking on uh, what he said there in paragraph 5. We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature, Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So I highlighted there the inward illumination, talking about the Spirit of God. Uh, He is the one that um, confirms to us His word. And then it says there are circumstances concerning a couple things. The worship of God, the government of the church. When it talks, the framers talk about the circumstances of these things. Uh, does anybody know what they're talking about when they're talking about circumstances? What is it they're trying to highlight there when it speaks of uh, the circumstances of worship or government? Anyone? Chandler. Okay, so the, uh, the essentials would be those elements of worship that are, in one sense, non-negotiable, right? Like the reading of the Word, singing of the Word, the preaching of the Word, uh, baptism, Lord's Supper. Okay, the language, think of that. So the circumstances may be different depending on where you live. Okay, what time we meet? Should we meet at 3 a.m.? Uh, any takers? Uh, no, no, that circumstance would be bad for me. I would not be good. Uh, the circumstances. Uh, must we sit in pews? That's kind of a circumstance. I, in the old days, right, they would just come in and stand. They didn't really even have chairs and that such. Uh, lighting. It's a circumstance, right? Instruments. Okay. It doesn't say you shall play the piano. Uh, do we have any guitar players in here today? Maybe uh, someone who can play the guitar for us, right? Uh, or the saxophone. Uh, piano works really well, but it's a circumstance. It is not um, something that we must have. No, notice it talks about the circumstances of our worship here, those, uh, those things that are not fundamental elements, but these things that can change. It says concerning the worship of God and even the government of the church. Uh, it talks about those human actions and societies. They're ordered by the light of nature. So the way that we conduct our business meetings, it doesn't say in the scriptures how we are to do that or if we were even to have one at all. But by using the light of nature, by using Christian prudence, the general principles of the word, we're able to um, conduct the government of the church in such a way that would be honoring to the Lord and in such a way that there's much freedom in how we do that because it is the circumstances uh, in which... um, we conduct ourselves in worship and our time together as the body. Um, so we've seen the, uh, the authority and, and the perfection of the scriptures. We don't really have uh, time maybe to look at chapter 14, uh, paragraph 2, but it, it describes saving faith 
And in it as well, it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit of God uh, working on the believer's hearts to believe whatsoever is true uh, and is revealed in the Word because God is the authority. And so I'm just going to skip over chapter 14, but uh, it is a good reminder as we think about the confession itself. We're, we're in chapter 1. But when you think about reading the confession, I don't want you to think, okay, this is chapter 1, we'll move on, this is chapter 2, kind of move on, now we're in chapter 3, but I want you to look at the confession, uh, James, Dr. Renahan talks about looking at the confession sideways, that is, the holiness and the beauty and the authority of the scriptures all the way through the confession. Whether you're looking at uh, the covenant of redemption, that has to do with the sufficiency of the scriptures. Uh, whether you're looking at uh, Christ as our mediator, uh, it's, it's like you want to look at the confession as a whole, like, uh, maybe as a web. It's all interconnected. And so uh, there's a lot of overlap between chapters and paragraphs and that sort of thing. Even in uh, these few paragraphs. In paragraph 7, he begins to talk about uh, the clarity of the Scriptures, and they say that all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, those things that are, again, that word necessary is a key word, Believe those things necessary to be observed for salvation. They're so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned and due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, toward the end of that chapter in verse 16, the Apostle Peter says, uh, he makes reference to Paul's writings, and he says, Paul writes, and in some things, he, he writes about things that are difficult to understand. Some things that are hard to understand. And that the unstable and the ignorant, they, they twist Paul's words, Peter says, as they do the other scriptures. And so, uh, this particular paragraph is talking about God's word and those things that are necessary to be known and believed and observed for salvation. Uh, speaking of the clarity of the scriptures, I often remember um, a quote by Mark Twain that he said, uh, uh, he said, it's not the things of the scriptures that I don't understand that bother me, but it's those things in the scriptures that I do understand, in my words, he will say, that wreck me. It's those things that are really clear in the scriptures and that we're in a sinful condition before God that disturb Him. And so as we think about the, the clarity of the Scriptures, the framers here are talking about both the learned and the unlearned in the due ordinary means of just reading, understanding, and writing, and studying. You can come to a sufficient understanding of them. Okay, it, it does not mean that all Scripture is perfectly crystal clear. Uh, that's why the Apostle Paul says that we need 
uh, preachers and teachers uh, to help equip the saints for ministry. Um, but on those things that are necessary for salvation, those things that are um, necessary to be known, uh, they're, they're clear. They're very clear. Clear on our, um, our guilt before God. Clear on what Jesus said. Uh, the impending doom for those that are without a Savior. Those that are trying to live according to the law on their own. That is insufficient to have a right standing before God. So it has to do with the gospel. It has to do with um, the sufficiency and the clarity of Scripture. That's uh, paragraph 7. Um, in, in paragraph 8, uh, let's see, 8, it, it highlights here the writings of the Scripture themselves according to the language um, of the Scriptures. It kind of highlights the autographs, we might call them, the originals. Um, look with me if you would. It says, uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of writing was generally known uh, to the nations. Draws attention to, it says, these are immediately inspired by God. He's talking about the autographs, that, that which the prophets and the apostles penned. They were inspired by God, the texts were inspired by God. And it says, by his singular care and his providence, he's kept pure in all ages. And therefore, they are authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. And the idea is that there is a dispute, there is a controversy. Go examine the Hebrew. Go and look at the Greek uh, and, and settle these matters. One of the things I think that the framers are trying to be uh, polemic against is the idea from the Roman Catholic Church uh, where they would say, well, uh, we have the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, and there are some major differences that the framers here knew of between the Latin Vulgate and the Greek, as uh, Erasmus came out with that Greek New Testament and compiled it all together so they could study the New Testament. Uh, just maybe one particular instance was a case in uh, Romans chapter 3. Uh, where it talks about um, this word that is uh, for repentance in Romans chapter 3. That is having a change of mind. And in the Latin, instead of uh, it describing repentance, um, they had uh, the descri uh, descriptive word uh, to do penance. Vast difference. Uh, to have a change of mind, uh, metanoia, and of that which they get their doctrine on of doing penance before God. Almost like Martin Luther as he would uh, whip his back thinking, I've, I've got to do more penance to please God. And he's like, the scripture says, no, God calls you to repent, have a change of mind about your sin, uh, not to flail yourself for that. Um, the last part of paragraph 8, it says this. It says, because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto 
and interest in the scriptures are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come. That would be the circumstance, right? We should have the word of God in our our common tongue. Um, That the word of God dwelling plentifully in all. Uh, Look at the purpose why we need the word of God in our own tongue. It highlights the idea of worship, that we may worship God in an acceptable manner according to the truth of, of the words as they're interpreted, as they're translated, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures, uh, that we may have hope. If someone were to come up here, not me because I don't know Latin, but if someone were to come up here and preach to you in Latin, uh, for me, uh, most of it would go right over my head. wouldn't understand much that's being said. It wouldn't be very profitable for me. I would need an interpreter. And what the framers are saying here is that we need to have the scriptures in our own language so that we may understand it, so that we may know uh, the word of God, that we may worship God, that we may have hope in what it says, what it declares. Um, The final two paragraphs of chapter one in our confession, it really talks about the finality and the end of all disputes being uh, grounded upon the scriptures. And uh, let's look at that. It says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, It's called the analogy of Scripture. It says, therefore, there is a question about uh, when there is a question about the true, the full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And this is truly one of the beginning uh, hermeneutical rules that you learn uh, in hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And if there is a passage of Scripture that is less clear, uh, we're to go to other passages of Scripture that are more clear uh, to maybe understand and how to harmonize the Scriptures. In paragraph 10, uh, again, kind of speaks of the same thing. It talks about the... Supreme Judge. So the Supreme Judge, the ultimate authority, rests in the Scriptures. It says, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, whether decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, the doctrines of men, uh, these private spirits, that is like, it could be like a personal opinion, or maybe a private spirit has spoken to you, not saying that those are all legit, but they're saying whatever happens, those things are to be examined. The sentence that, that we are to rest in is nothing other than the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit uh, into which Scripture is delivered. And that is where our faith is finally resolved. And so when you hear someone teaching or preaching, uh, if, if you have a different idea of it from the Scriptures, uh, go to them, bring the Scriptures to them, ask them. Uh, the, the Scriptures are the final authority. And seek understanding in light of what the scriptures say and in their clarity. Uh, so we've seen the authority of the scriptures, the perfection, the clarity of the scriptures. This is, this is chapter one of the scriptures. Please be reading it over, over, over the, the holidays. Let it marinate in your mind. Let it let, think of the words. This is an old document and some of the words uh, may be a little uh, archaic. 
what we're going to get to um, in the new year is we're going to start on chapter two is of God and the uh, Holy Trinity. So it's going to start uh, examining the scriptures in light of who is God. So it begins with the scriptures, the necessity that we have to even know who God is, special revelation. And then it gets into uh, the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of God in chapter two. Uh, that was fast, wasn't it? I apologize for that. To try to do seven paragraphs in one morning is extremely difficult. If you have any questions, I'll be around later. We can plenty of time to talk about things. Not only today, but in the coming weeks. And uh, let me close our time in prayer. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Lord is. We study this confession of faith. Father, I pray that um, the confession itself would not be elevated up and above your holy word. Even the framers were very careful to reiterate again and again that what we need is special revelation from you. We need your holy word. We need to be examining the scriptures and studying them diligently and seeking to obey your word in every point, in every way, for it is the ultimate authority. It is to end all disputes. And Father, I pray that today that you would bless us in your holy word. Father, as we worship you according to how you have uh, given us these elements, these essentials of worship. Father, may you be praised to uh, the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's take a, maybe a 15-minute break.